Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. Joseph the carpenter walked by. They knew him as just a figure in the village. And um, they, nice guy, good neighbor, not any trouble, never had to call the police on him. Um, just really, really nice guy. And that, that's about the way they knew Jesus. And that's the way some people know Jesus now. He's a really nice guy. He doesn't cause me any problems. And I speak well of him. He's okay, but just a nice guy. But there were some people who knew Jesus as a healer, those who were sick and hopeless in despair, those who relied upon friends and neighbors to carry their cots to Jesus and lay them down outside the village of Capernaum, those who opened up the roof and lowered the, the bed down through the roof so Jesus would see their friend, the paralytic. Those kinds of people, when they were healed, they knew Jesus was the healer. And they knew that he had the power to overcome whatever it was that was distressing their lives. And there are people who know Jesus today as the healer. I mean, Jesus still heals people. You can't go to the hospital as long and as, and as to as many times as I have and visited people without knowing that God still works miracles of healing. And even those healings that, that uh, the doctors would say, well, we did this, we did this, we did this. Yeah, but God ordained it. And God executed it and God brought it to pass. And so God is a healer. And there are some who, who today, they know that Jesus is a healer. It might have been a wounded heart. It might have been a misguided uh, sort of decision-making process that he brought back online, but they know that he is able to heal their lives, and that is who Jesus is. There are some who know Jesus for the great wisdom of his teaching. These are, were folks back then who were wondering, what does the Torah really mean? What is this, this thing of belonging to the people of Israel? What does it really mean? And Jesus brought to them teaching that they never heard before. He taught as one who had authority. Not someone who had to quote somebody else, but he was the one who spoke with authority. And the scriptures would come alive inside of their hearts, and their hearts would burn within them. And they they came to know Jesus as the great teacher, the one who brought a wisdom from heaven into their lives. There are those who know him today as a great, wise teacher whose insights and whose instruction bring about the path of life that we ought to follow. There are folks today who know that, yes, life is better with Jesus and Jesus makes life better and, and they're going with that and they're, they're just rejoicing that Jesus does teach wisdom. But if you get close enough to Jesus, the closer you get to Jesus, the more you know there's a gap and a gulf between who he is and who I am. When you start to draw near to the glory of Jesus, he shines brighter and brighter, doesn't he? 
you start to, 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 to walk closer to Jesus, you put your footsteps in his footprints and, and you're following Jesus, the more you follow him and the more you, you draw near him, the closer you get, the brighter he shines and the brighter he shines until the glory of Jesus is just filling your life and the brightness of the light of Jesus penetrates into every dark corner of your life and suddenly you see all the sin that still inhabits your heart. And you see the sin that is still so uh, uh, repulsive and offensive to Jesus. And you see that you still aren't where you need to be. And that all the glory of Jesus just highlights your own sinfulness. You see, to draw near to Jesus is to know your sin. And ultimately, you'll know that you are a sinner. But here, here's the great thing. When you know you're a sinner... Then you know Jesus, not just as the healer, not just as the teacher, but you know Jesus as the Savior. And when you know him as the Savior, that's what he came to do. That's who he is. And so you really won't know Jesus until you know your own sinfulness. But the closer you draw to Jesus, the more he's around you, the more you become aware of your sin. This happened to the apostle Peter. It happened to him before he was an apostle. He was a an apostle in training, I guess. But he was uh, uh, fishing with his, his friends and his brother, James and John, Peter and Andrew. They were in the boats and they were fishing and Jesus came to the, sea, uh, the lakeside and, and he said, look, have you caught anything? No, nah, no, nah, I haven't caught a thing. He says, well, throw the nets on the other side of the boat. Do you remember this? Yes. He said, throw the notes, uh, the notes, the nets on the other side of the boats and see what you get. He said, well, okay, you know, it's Jesus after all. So they throw the nets in on the other side of the boat, and they start hauling in fish. Now, this morning I wanted to call it, they hauled in a bumper crop of fish, but I don't, <laughs> I don't think that's the right term for it. But they got a bunch of bumper fish in, into the boats. And they got so many bumper fish into the boats that the boats began to sink. And Peter's figuring this out. He's saying, let's see, Jesus commands... Things happen. Jesus commands, I obey, my boat sinks. Why would he do this to me? I think I know why. And he runs up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. That was Peter's encounter with Jesus. Jesus, the person that you are with the authority you have and the power you have, Jesus, in your presence, the only thing I can say about myself is that I am a sinful man. But at that moment, he began to know Jesus as Savior, the one who died for his sins. And that's how you come to know Jesus. Paul experienced this. Paul, I think, experienced this and remembered it and thought about it for the rest of his life after he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. You know, Paul, uh, who went out and he planted churches and he evangelized and he started writing letters that wound up in the New Testament. Paul, who was a, a great uh, um, uh, champion of the doctrine of, of grace and all those things. Paul, when he described his life and he, he described Jesus, he said, there's a big gulf between us anyway. And still, uh, let me read that to you. It's in, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you want to go there, that, that, that's great. I'll read it for you. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says this. Um, I'm going to start at verse 15. <laughs> well, here's the problem I'm having. 
I'm going to start at verse 15, but I really need to start at verse 1, but that's a whole sermon series in a big. Okay. But we'll start at verse 15. It says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is why Jesus came, to save sinners. And then Paul says, right after that, he says, of whom I am the foremost. I learned it in King James. I am the chief. He says, I am sinner number one. When you look at all the levels of sin and all the kinds of sinners, if you're looking for the worst sinner there ever was, Paul says, that's who I am. Now, I don't know how you compare sinners and how you rank them and how you get to be the chief of sinners and the second of sinners and third. Th no, I don't think that's what the point Paul is making is, he says, I can't even afford to think anybody, about anybody else. All I know is in the presence of Jesus who came to save sinners, I'm sinner number one. In the presence of the holiness of Jesus, all I can see is my own sin. But then Paul goes on to say this. He says, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason. That in me, as the foremost, as the chief of sinners, as the sinner number one, Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. Jesus saves me out of mercy. He's got a reason for this. And then in verse 17, he just sort of breaks out into worship. To the king of the ages immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Who wants to say amen? amen? Thank you for reading the scripture. I mean, that's what happens when you come close to Jesus. You get closer to Jesus, you know more and more of your sin, and then you find that Jesus is not there to condemn, but he is there to save and to forgive. And you pour out your heart, and by the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit, you confess that he is Lord and that he is Savior, and then Jesus, by his mercy, he saves you. And the only thing you can do is break out into peons of praise to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, to him be glory forever and ever and ever. See, when you draw near to Jesus, you're convicted of your sin. And really, the more aware you are of Jesus, the more aware you are of sin. But the more aware you are of sin, the easier it is to be aware of Jesus and what he has done. Paul goes through that. He says, I was the chief of sinners, but God poured his mercy out on, on me. And then he says, and to God be the what? The glory, the absolute glory. Now, this morning we're looking at those two words, justification, forgiven of my sins, declared not guilty. And we're looking at glory, being glorification, being glorified. And Paul links those two up. He says, when I came to Jesus, I had to be forgiven. I had to be declared not guilty, and because of that, God gets the glory. Those two go, go together. The, the, the last two links in those five things that we've been looking at, the foreknowledge of God, predestination, the calling, today justification and glorification. But I wanted for us to begin by understanding the depths of our sinfulness before God because you won't appreciate the depths and the profound nature of the grace of God until you understand how deep 
and pervasive is our sin. And once you understand how radically sinful we are, how we have rebelled against God, we've rejected him. Once you start to understand that, then you just look at, and we're back in Romans 8, you look at Romans 8 and you just are dumbfounded at how God could be this gracious and kind to us. Because when it says, he foreknew us, and we talked about that a little bit ago, but just to remind you, he foreknew us as sinners. He foreknew us as sinners. There are some who would say, well, what God really did was he looked into the future and he saw who was going to be good. He saw who was going to be worthy. He saw who was going to believe, who was going to have faith. And he looked. And so when he chose, when he foreknew people, when he elected people, it was on the basis of their goodness. Now, here's why I can't believe that. If God chooses on the basis of seeing our future goodness, he'll never, ever choose me. If God chooses because I'm somehow smart enough to figure it out, he will never choose me. But those whom he foreknew, he foreknew in their sinfulness. He foreknew them as sinners that they are. And out of grace, he foreknew them and decided elected, chose that he would engage in a personal relationship with those who were sinners. And if God foreknew you as a sinner, how much more now as a child of God? See, that's what, that's what Paul's getting at. He's, he's, he's trying to, to undergird us and say, look, here's how you can be certain of the promises of God because it began in the very depths of eternity, in the very character and nature of God, and it began while you deserved nothing. Absolutely nothing. And those whom he foreknew, he foreknew as sinners. But then it says, those whom he predestined. He predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus, the image of God's own son. But he foreknew us, and then he predestined us as sinners. It's not as though he chose us so that he could have a big talent pool, and then those who were good enough could be predestined and conformed to the image of Jesus. In other words, God's grace is not like the um, Major League Baseball playoffs you're looking at right now. Look, I'm trying to be contemporary and latch on to you, so go with me. <laughs> you know, when you, when you watch the Washington Nationals, and you watch them finally come alive in the bottom of the eighth inning, you'd say, where have you been all this time? Oh, I'm sorry. But when, you, when you're watching the Washington Nationals, it's a professional baseball team for those. Okay, are we, okay. Professional baseball. These are the elite baseball players of the world. But all of that started back in Little League. Maybe Sandlot. I, I, <laughs> I was the only guy who was so bad I got kicked out of Little League. But, you know, so we played a lot of Sandlot ball. But then, you know, kids actually played their own games back then. But I am chasing a rabbit so far away that it's not even funny. But anyway, but, you know, but kids are out in the sandlots and they're playing ball. They're in Little League and they're playing ball and they're all playing ball. And the parents are looking at that and saying, my kid's going to be a Major League Baseball player. And the guy next to you is saying, no, your kid can't be that. I've seen him play. You know, but, you know, you have all these hopes, you know, he's going to be a Major League Baseball player. But most of the kids who play Little League don't play high school ball. I mean, just think about it. Most of them don't play high school ball. And the kids who play high school ball and you're looking at that and saying, wow, college scholarship going on here. 
You know, maybe it is, and I hope so for your kids, but for most of us, think, you know, scholarship going on here. Very few of the college play, uh, high school players actually become college players. You look into the college players and say, wow, going to be major league players. Well, they get out of college and they might get drafted into the minors. And only a few of the college uh, players get into the minors. And then all these guys in the minors, they're hoping to get in the majors, but not many of them get into the majors. And so by the time you're in the majors, you have ascended to where you wanted to be all the time. And you've done that on the basis of hard work, a little bit of good fortune, maybe somebody liked you, and the fact that you were drafted by a last place club that didn't have anybody better. So you're, you're in the majors. But most of the people didn't get there. God predestined us to get there. Every believer in Jesus Christ, God has predestined to reach the major leagues, to reach the image of God's own son, to be like Jesus. This is what God is doing. And the profound nature of God's grace is that he didn't say, well, I'm going to choose a few in my fantasy draft to be a part of my team to look like Jesus. He said, I have chosen everyone that I foreknew, every one of them I have predestined to be conformed to the image of my dear son. And then he didn't say, if they can figure it out and if they can get to me, he says, I'll go to them. And so those whom he predestined, he called, but he called us as sinners. You do remember Romans 5, 8. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel doesn't come to people who have achieved their journey to the presence of God. It doesn't come to people who have gotten halfway to the presence of God. The gospel and the grace of God in the gospel doesn't come to those who've taken the first step on their own to God. The gospel comes to those who are sinners alienated and apart from God, and God's grace fills their lives and the Holy Spirit changes their hearts and raises them up that they might confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. It's all God's doing. So his calling is a calling of sinners. I, I'm, I'm going to suppose that your experience is kind of like mine when you, when you realize, you know, I'm a believer in Jesus, and I am. God in his mercy just set things up in my life that I be, I'm, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. But I can tell you this, I, I, I don't go back and look at it and say, you know, now that I know who Jesus is, is and now that I know what righteousness is, now that I know what the scriptures teach, now that I know what God expects, you know, I think I would have figured out about 57% of that on my own. Right? Now, when you think about it, how much of this would I have figured out on my own? And the answer is none of it, not a bit of it. It was all God's calling. So he calls us as sinners. Those who don't deserve it, he calls. But then the words that we're looking at this morning, he says, and those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. And those whom he called, he Justified. Now, that's a legal term. It comes from the law courts. It means declared not guilty. If you look back at the first verse of chapter 8, he says, there's what? No condemnation. There's no guilty verdict for those in Christ Jesus. 
We are justified. Justified, not condemned. Same thing. We are declared, made, not guilty. I'll let the theologians argue it. If you want to come and have a discussion, we'll talk about it. Is it moral? Is it forensic? Is it ethical? You know exactly what's going on here. Here's what I can tell you. God justifies sinners, and it's all of God, and it's all of God's grace. Now, some people feel as though justification is the offer of a program rather than a done deal of God's grace. And here I'm, I'm, frankly, I'm thinking about the Roman Catholic Church and I'm thinking about Wesleyan traditions. And, and you know, we, we don't judge anybody's salvation. I mean, there's, there's probably some things wrong with my theology, but you'll never know what they are. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, you will. When we get to heaven, God's going to zap me for this one and he'll tell you what they are. But anyway... But in the Roman Catholic tradition and in the Wesleyan tradition, there's this idea that God justifies us in order to give us a chance to hold on to our salvation. The idea is that God says, you're not guilty. Everything you've ever done, forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You are justified. Now, don't step out of line. And if you step out of line, you better find a priest and, and, and confess your sins and do penance and work it off. And if you miss confession and if you miss penance and if you happen to die between Saturday night's confession and the next Saturday night's confession, if you die on a Wednesday, well, we've got purgatory for you. And you can work it all off because God justifies you so that you can try to be good enough to get into heaven. I don't think I'm far off base. Any Roman Catholic scholars here? I think, I think that's about it. And our Wesleyan brothers and sisters, they'll say, look, God saves you, but you could lose it. God saves you, but you know, if, if you don't do enough, if you're not devoted enough and you're not spiritual enough and you, and you mess up and, the, and you never get a handle on that sin that's besetting you, you know, if you do that, well, you, you can lose your salvation and you walk around saying, have I lost it yet? Have I lost it yet? I'm telling you this, in my notebook, I've got... I think it's, I'm up to six reasons why if you could lose your salvation, you would lose your salvation. I may do that next week. It would fit. Randy says it's okay. But here's, here's the thing. But the idea is that you are justified so that you can start on a program and a process of trying to hang on to your salvation. God justifies sinners. And the whole point of this is that our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ because the one who foreknew us as sinners is the one who predestined us out of our sinfulness to be conformed to the image of Jesus. He is the one who called us out of our sinfulness, and now he is the one who justifies us, declares us not guilty of our sinfulness. Folks, what God does, he does for eternity. And if God has said you're not guilty, you are not guilty. So he says, you know, we, you're justified. And that's really what he's been talking about. I, I mentioned that a moment ago. At, at the very start of the, of, of the book of Romans, he says, this is what we're going to be talking about. The gospel is there, power of salvation, in it the justifying righteousness of God. The, uh, the dikaiosune is, is the word, uh, is, is um, declared and is made known through the gospel. And that comes to us as a gift as sinners. But then he goes on and he says, so as as those who are justified, then those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
Now, the interesting thing to this, of this to me, he said, again, if you go back to the first chapter of Romans, first thing he says is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, in it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. And in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Righteousness of God is revealed. And then you remember what he says next. But the wrath of God is revealed. And why is the wrath of God is revealed? I'm going to shorten the whole thing. It's revealed because we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the image of mortal man. That's what he says. It's there in Romans, I think it's like 119 or 20 or 21. Look it up and tell me later. You see how those two came together? The gospel reveals his righteousness, and we need his righteousness. We need to be justified because we've rejected his glory. We have rejected and exchanged the glory of God for the image of mortal man. We've gone after worshiping uh, lizards and birds and creepy things. We're worshiping ourselves, and that's what we've done. We've left off the glory of God. But those whom he justified, God glorified. In other words, he brought us back to where we should have been all along, and that is he brings us back so that we as creatures, as children of the Father, we now give him the glory. You know, I looked at that and it says, um, he glorified. And I said, now, what did that mean? And, and I've always sort of felt like it meant, well, to be glorified means God brings us to glory. And this is, this is entirely true. God brings us to the glory of heaven. We walk into the courts of heaven. Of course, the angels there say, why are you here? And we say, well, I'm with him. When we point to Jesus, say, oh, yeah, okay. So we walk in based on the name of Jesus, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But we walk into the glory of heaven. We walk into the glory of singing with the angels. Miracle. We're singing with the angels on key <laughs> with perfect diction. I'm glad my mic wasn't on when I was singing up there because the, the, there were two things happening up there. The choir was singing an anthem and I was faking it. So, but that was, hey, we get to heaven, we don't have to fake it. We can sing, all right. Going to get to heaven and we'll, we'll see the, the one seated upon the throne and the lamb standing as if slain. And we'll sing, holy, 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 worthy is the lamb, worthy is the one who is slain. And we're going to talk about how God has done this great thing of saving a lost humanity for his glory. And we'll give him the glory. And so to be glorified, I thought, that's, that's to be brought to glory. And to experience the glory of heaven. And that is true, praise God. But I think it also means this. God glorifies us by conforming us to the image of Jesus that he would be glorified. That others would see his glory in us. It's almost like up there in heaven, you know, we're all going to take our turns. And we've got plenty of time. Plenty of time. And uh, you don't even need bathroom breaks. So, you know, it's, it, you know we'll, we'll all just, we'll sit around here and, and, and I think God will just bring up one at a time and he'll bring up somebody who says, look, here's somebody, you didn't know who they were and you, did, you, you thought they were of no account and they were little, little in your eyes. But here, I want you to see what I saw when I looked at this person and he'll take this, this believer in Jesus and say, I want you to see over here, you see Jesus, you see how they were kind. 
I know it was just once in their life, but that was Jesus, and we're going to give glory for that, and we'll all just sing, and we'll just break out, and we'll shout for about eternity for this one little thing of Jesus in this person. Then I'll say, and here's another little piece of Jesus that you saw when they were loving, and we'll sing for another eternity about the glory of Jesus in this person. And by the time we get through with everybody, the countless numbers who are in heaven, each one held up to give glory to Jesus in their life, when it's all done, you know what we're going to say? Encore! Let's do it again! <laughs> you know? And we'll get rolling because we're going to look for Jesus and we're going to point to Jesus and we're going to give him all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. And miracle of miracles, when God calls me up in front of y'all, he's going to say, folks, I wanted you to see Jesus in this poor excuse for a human being. But let's go to his wife. She's much better. <laughs> the miracle of it all. And I don't understand this. There will be something in my life that the father will point to and say, that's, that's like my son. That's like my, my son. And God will get the glory for it all. And this is a done deal. This, this is certain, absolutely certain. Because God, before the foundation of the earth, before all of creation, he foreknew us, he predestined us, he called us, he justified us, and he glorified us. All this is certain. Why? Because it all resides in who God is, not in who we are. Now, that's a pretty good lecture, I think. Uh, you, you know, a nice exegesis. It's, it's, it's some really sound theology, but what I want to suggest to you, this is some of the most practical knowledge you can have. This will get you through life because the time will come when you don't know. God will be so distant that you'll think, I, I don't know where God is. I don't know what he's up to. I, I, I can't, you know, it's, it's just not registering on, on, my, on my radar right now. I, I don't know. But in those moments, remember that God knows you. And he knew you before the foundation of the world. And he knew you as a sinner that he would redeem and collect unto himself. He knew that already. And not only that, the foreknowledge of God is why we know him. We know him because he first knew us. How's that? And there will come a time when you don't, won't know what to do with your life. You won't know what decision to make. You'll have a, a, a series of choices and all of them are bad. Or you'll be going through life and you'll look back and you say, where, where, how did I get here? Where have I been? Where am I going? I, I don't see any point to this. And you'll be downcast and you'll be despondent. You won't know what the purpose of all this is. But God, before the foundation of the world, predestined you to be like his son, to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's why in every situation of life, the best thing you can do is live for the glory of God because that's his purpose for you. There will come a time when you're lonely. And it's a dreadful thing to be lonely. It's even worse to be lonely in a crowd. And you feel as though nobody's listening, and nobody's caring, and nobody's interacting, and you feel as though you're, you're deep down you're all alone. And then you'll remember that God called me. I didn't have to call him. He called me, you know. He's not waiting by the phone for me to ring him up. People don't do that anymore, do they? My phone has the little default marimba sound on it. God's not waiting for the little marimba sound, you know, that I'm calling. He calls me. And I'm not alone because he has reached out. His invitation comes from him, from his character and nature out of the eternal depths of who God is, he comes to me. 
And I'm going to tell you, you are going to feel guilty. Maybe, maybe you don't feel guilty right now, but at some point, you ought to feel guilty. <laughs> but sometimes we feel dreadfully guilty. It's those moments when we realize that those decisions we were making that we thought weren't hurting anybody, suddenly we, we discovered they hurt a lot of people. Suddenly we see the magnitude of our sin and our wrongdoing and the guilt feelings come on you. What I want you to know is God justified you in Christ Jesus. You are not guilty. Now, the Holy Spirit brings that conviction. The Holy Spirit gives us the courage of confession. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to uh, repent. And the Holy Spirit turns us around and gives us the energy and the wherewithal and the guidance whereby we can live a, a holy and a devout life. That's what we'll get to when we get to Romans 12. <laughs> if Jesus tarries, we will get to Romans 12. <laughs> That's where we've been headed all this time. But remember, you're not guilty in Christ Jesus. And sometimes life will seem awfully drab. It'll seem awfully colorless and, and just sort of blah. But here's the deal. God is bringing glory to himself through your life. He has put the spirit of his son in your heart as a believer in Jesus Christ. He has put Jesus in your heart. And so God is glorifying himself through your life. This is an amazing thing to me. It's just an amazing thing. If I was going to draw a painting to glorify God, I would buy the best oils and the best canvas and the best brushes, and then I'd hire the best artist because I couldn't do it. But, you know, I'd, I would get the best materials. But when God wanted to paint the portrait of his son, he chose us. What grace the magnitude of God's grace. So this morning, what I, what I really want you to latch on to is that God's grace is bigger than our sin and bigger than our shortcomings and bigger than our limitations and bigger than our frailty. And our, uh, it, it, God's grace is so deep and profound. It, it stretches back into eternity past and into eternity in the future. God's grace is just that big. And out of that grace... He foreknew us and predestined us and called us and justified us and glorified us. Worthy of all glory. Worthy of all praise. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, our voices may not be much, but with what we have, we're going to sing your praises. Father, our strength is not great, but with what strength we have, we are going to work for your glory. Father, our understanding is shallow, but with what we know, we are going to proclaim and to witness and to share for your glory. Because, Father, you've been so gracious and kind and glorious to us. And we want that glory to be seen in the person of Jesus in our lives. So, Father, make us vessels of your praise. Make us vessels and temples and habitations of your Holy Spirit. Conform us to the image of your dear Son day by day so that all would see Jesus and give you the glory because, Father, you deserve all honor, praise, glory, adoration, worship. Father, you deserve it all. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.